This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. Welcome to a special post-Labor Day episode of the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and as promised, this episode, I thought it would be a good time to step back and provide an overview of the state of the Democratic primary. It, It can be easy, I think, to lose track of where things actually stand week by week, episode by episode, as we focus on specific angles or the latest happenings. So this episode, we'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the campaigns and their likelihood of getting the nomination. The campaigns will be ranked. Uh, A few notes before we jump in. First, it is still very early in this campaign. Uh, Many, many voters are undecided. Many are not even paying attention. And so we could see poll numbers change drastically in December or January, not necessarily because of anything the campaigns are doing to persuade voters, but because of an influx of voters who are just getting off the fence, who are just starting to tune in. Uh, Campaigns that are headed in one direction now could head in a very different direction as we get closer to votes. I've tried to consider the range of options here, but I have no doubt that my rankings will be different in December than they are right now. Uh, This is the point of doing a regular podcast uh, rather than just uh, doing one podcast in February of 2019 where I say how everything's going to go and leaving that on the shelf. No campaigns are dynamic things. Campaigns really do make a difference. So does the political environment, uh, some aspects of which we know now, but uh, some aspects of which Uh, We may not be able to predict in February, what is the state of the economy? Are there any major events that shape the mind of the primary electorate? How is Donald Trump doing in the polls? Does he look like a uh, a candidate uh, who's inevitably headed for a defeat? Or are his poll numbers up? And do Democratic primary voters have electability on their minds more than uh, they even do now? So a a lot can change. So consider these rankings as a snapshot in time, not necessarily a firm prediction. There will be more than enough time for those. I promise to give firm predictions that uh, I can either run victory laps about or be held ruthlessly accountable for uh, (laughs) once we get a little closer uh, to votes. Uh, The the second uh, note I want to add is that these rankings are not about whose campaign is strongest today, but rather about which campaigns are best positioned to win the nomination. And then the final note is that we do have one clear bias on this podcast, and it's that we think faith is important. It's in the name. It's the Faith 2020 podcast. And so faith outreach and the way faith influences the electorate are factors included in my rankings that don't feature so prominently in other analysis you might find which obviously is a flaw in my view. All right, let's jump in the state of the 2020 Democratic primary race with my rankings and analysis.
All right, let's do this. Starting from the least likely of the 10 who made the debate stage in September to win the nomination, we'll work our way up to the most. At number 10, I have Andrew Yang. Now, as we've discussed on the show before, as I've written for my Substack, I do think that there are reasons why Andrew Yang's candidacy is salient for a lot of folks. But this is not the election cycle where Democrats are going to sort of choose a political amateur and someone who doesn't have a record of delivering on core Democratic priorities. I just don't see it happening uh, this time around. That is his primary weakness, the lack of political history and the capital that uh, you would be able to build up with that history. I do think his pathway to the presidency, which is, again, very unlikely, that's why he's in 10th, uh, would, would be a, a Democratic field where everyone just seems to be disqualified by the time we get to votes, that voters just say, why not give Andrew Yang a, a, a shot? I don't see the Democratic primary getting that vicious, getting that destructive. Uh, and so I, I have Andrew Yang as least likely to get the nomination. I will say, I do think his endorsement is going to be sought after. I do think it will be more valuable than... Several of, of the other candidates who are ranked higher than he is, I think in the Democratic administration, I wouldn't be surprised if he had some kind of role where he was able to provide not a staff position necessarily, but a a, a role where uh, on a commission or something that he was chair of that provided recommendations on making government more efficient and responsive to people. You could you could see that kind of role as something that, that he uh, has uh, potentially carved out for himself over the course of this process. Uh, so Andrew Yang, least likely. I did consider flipping him with the person in ninth, uh, but again, it's the lack of political experience and the importance of that in a Democratic primary uh, have him at 10th. And so who's number nine? Number nine is Julian Castro. Julian Castro came into this race with a lot of credentials and qualities that one would think would be valuable. Uh, secretary, uh, cabinet secretary in uh, a very popular White House uh, and, and very popular uh, for a very popular president within the Democratic primary. Uh, his role in Texas, a state that a lot of Democrats, especially at the activist level, want to see and believe can turn blue. He has both undercut himself and been undercut by other candidates where some of his greatest qualities and strengths lie. Uh, most obviously, uh, well, in Texas, with Beto running, it has really harmed him there. And then when it comes to his cabinet role, he has not been promoting really his record as Secretary of HUD as something that is an indication of what the American people can expect from him as president. At times, he's been in a position of critiquing uh, the administration. And so sort of the, the role that he was most known for isn't the front-facing aspect of his campaign. Now, I will say his path to the presidency which I do think is is more likely than Andrew Yang's, is that Julian Castro, particularly given Kamala Harris's pivot, 
is the candidate that is running closest to the sort of activist social justice side of the Democratic Party. He is uh, someone who's been willing to use their language to uh, be accepting and promoting of the policies that come from that wing. And so you could see that sort of wing of the party get strengthened and him be able to ride that to the nomination as the candidate who sort of never left them. Uh, again, I think that's very unlikely. That's why <laughs> that's why Castro's in ninth. Because unlike some of the other candidates that we'll talk about, who I think their positioning doesn't necessarily require them to pop until later in this process, if Castro's strength with the activist sort of crowd was going to be potent enough to get him to the nomination, you'd expect to see some of the signs that that was building. You'd expect to see activists putting their thumb on the scale in his favor. You'd expect to see... uh, uh, the sort of left-wing commentariat sort of begin building the case for Castro. And while there's been some of that, especially after the July debate where he performed well, uh, it, it just, in my view, just it isn't enough. So I, I view his path to the nomination to be unlikely. Uh, though I will say this doesn't have to be the last time that he runs for president. I think he's going to learn a lot from this experience Uh, And it will be interesting to see the choices that he makes in his political career from this point. All right, we've done number 10. We've done number nine. Number eight, I have Beto after sort of national prominence uh, after his race against Cruz, where he was polling very well. Uh, I've never seen the launch of his campaign seemed to harm him more than help him, which is not completely unheard of, but, you know, hard, hard to hard to pull off. And we just haven't seen his numbers improve. He does have fundraising prowess. He does have that national fundraising network from, from his Senate run. He's going to be able to stay in for, uh, till votes take place if he, if he wants to, uh, I'm seeing a a kind of desperation that sometimes has led to very creative and I think helpful tactics such as uh, Beto campaigning in places that don't usually hear from Democratic candidates, showing up to a gun show and making an argument for gun control. I think that's uh, a very positive thing for our politics and something I'd like to see from a Democratic nominee. On the other hand, the sort of... uh, what we talked about on the previous episode, the instrumentalization of vulgarity to try and send some kind of political message to try and gain traction. I don't think voters are buying that. And, and so I, I don't see Beto as uh, a likely winner of the nomination. Now, Beto's pathway to the presidency is that he has an extremely competent campaign manager that is putting infrastructure in place uh, that if Beto's able to capture lightning in a bottle twice. He'll be able to capitalize it in a way that some of the other candidates would not. Uh, and so uh, both because of his fundraising network, because of the uh, because of the campaign infrastructure that's in place for Beto. And so, you know, he, he's, he's really relying on a viral moment, in my view, in a way that uh, almost none of the other candidates are. Uh, because that's how he really came to 
came to prominence. And so I, I don't view that as being too likely at this stage of the primary, especially because I think part of what he was looking for for his constituency has been undercut by the person who's in seventh, and that is Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, who's had a, a pretty uh, amazing campaign so far for being mayor of a town in the in Indiana, uh, a relatively you know mid-sized town. Pete Buttigieg, what looked like he might be breaking into the first tier, his support has been so limited and narrow, his inability to sort of win voters outside of a middle to upper income, primarily white demographic, uh, just doesn't bode well. You know, so I would separate out the sort of bottom three. I think we're now into a new tier of likelihood where I don't view Pete as being likely to get the nomination, but certainly he has a chance. He has a ton of money. He raised money at the right time. He's going to be able to stay in the race if he wants. Uh, He is one of the most nimble politicians uh, in this race. He's very good in sort of interview settings. Uh, He can sometimes have surprising uh, surprising answers. I do think his approach to faith is something that a segment of the Democratic electorate is hungry for, uh, for 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 good or for ill. Uh, they're they're hungry for aspects of what uh, of Pete's message messaging uh, on faith, and so I I do think he's viable. He has what it takes to be around for votes. In February and March, and maybe uh, things strike, and maybe they don't for him. I do have him in, in seventh uh, because he has yet to show that he can build a coalition of voters that can win a primary. And so I, I'd say Buttigieg is probably the candidate that can move the most over the next couple of months. That this fall period is absolutely critical for Buttigieg, maybe more so than any of the other candidates. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to reevaluating where, where Pete stands uh, in November and December. Number six, and I think this is maybe the biggest surprise in the rankings, I have Amy Klobuchar as number six. Her pathway to the presidency depends on the Biden campaign collapsing. Uh, But I like the clarity of focus that the Klobuchar campaign has, which is they are all in in Iowa, a place where I do think someone like Amy Klobuchar can be successful and leverage that into broader relevancy. I think she's someone who has an electability argument that is at least on par with Joe Biden's in terms of her ability to win in swing states, uh, her ability to persuade voters, her negatives are only going to go so high. And and so in a race against Donald Trump, if you're able to put up a candidate who uh, it's less likely that they're going to be hated by a majority of the electorate by the time the vote comes around, uh, that's, that's a pretty positive quality uh, to have uh, in in this primary, uh, still, well, and I should add, poll just came out today showing Klobuchar's investment in Iowa 
might be bearing some fruit. We need to see some more state polls. This is very recent, but uh, her support has doubled in the state. She now has 8% support in Iowa, outpolling many of the other candidates that people think of as being uh, sort of higher than her. So it's it's something to watch. The reason why I have her at 6 is that you can see uh, a, a, a clear strategic pathway to the nomination for her that you can't see for some of the candidates uh, who rank below her. And, and and really, uh, for a couple of the candidates who rank above her. Um, so that's Amy Klobuchar. Don't be, don't be surprised to see Amy Klobuchar continue to build momentum. I, I do think, and this is the last comment I'll make on, on Klobuchar, that she is someone who understands that she can't have a viral moment and sort of sustain that by her own personality for months and months and months. And so what I've seen in each debate performance from Klobuchar is a steady building. She was much more aggressive in September than she was in July. She was more aggressive in July than she was in June. I think she is counting on, in part, being able to deliver a moment in one of the debates in January, in the last debate in Iowa before votes take place, uh, that she can then ride. She has enough sort of uh, charisma and talent as a politician to ride that momentum out for a couple months uh, and and hope that she's, she's someone who just sort of catches as like, of course, Amy Klobuchar is the right candidate for this moment. And that's, that's what she's, what she's banking on. All right, we're now in the top half of the rankings. And number five is Kamala Harris. Senator Harris, who I have at the outset of her campaign and really for the last two, three years, I've been very high on from a strategic perspective as someone who is making all the right moves to position herself well for this nomination. Uh, We have seen what an internal campaign memo referred to as a a summer slump uh, with the Harris campaign that's, you know, persisted into this month. She is running like a a candidate and her campaign is treating her as a candidate that they don't know who she is yet. Uh, The strategic indecision, the testing out of really different messages aimed at very different slices of the Democratic Party strikes me as either sort of political malpractice or a sort of an attempt at political jiu-jitsu to uh, somehow suggest that she can be everything to everybody. And I just don't think it's working. And I don't have much confidence at this point, despite my high confidence in, uh, in, in that campaign, really before this campaign started, uh, that, that they'll be able to square the circle. I also think Harris is attempting a more secular approach to the black vote in particular, that I think we're a couple presidential cycles away from that working so much. Now, don't get me wrong. She's been in churches. She's, But some of the positions she's taken, uh, some of the places where they made the biggest investment, some of the tactics where they made the biggest investment 
are at best neutral and in some cases very contrary to what uh, a candidate who was uh, going to make a strong appeal to the black church would have. And so she has a significant amount of money. She has a significant amount of endorsements. She is an incredibly talented politician. There are a lot of influential people who want her to be president. And so she's, she's number five. She has, she, has a, she has a real path to the presidency. Uh, but I do think the angle that she's trying to get at now is actually better filled by a candidate who's been polling more poorly but is actually better positioned to filling the role that uh, she clearly is now trying to squeeze herself into. And so that leads me to number four. And number four is Senator Cory Booker. I think out of all of the candidates, and and I was especially convinced of this uh, during the September debate, Cory Booker is best positioned to be the unifying candidate in the Democratic primary. If uh, Biden is effectively sort of tainted by, frankly, a lot of ridiculous attacks that have been coming his way over the course of months, but really it's it's starting to get ridiculous. But those those attacks, even if people dismiss them one by one, what they all add up to could be too much. So if Biden falls, but electability is still a concern. And stitching together the various components of the Democratic primary, because Biden isn't going to go down without a fight. And so you could end up in a place where in uh, uh, in February, in March, we're looking at a at a party that's that has a lot of friction, uh, a moderate left wing divide a divide along racial uh, 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 categories. Cory Booker is someone, again, because unlike, and this may seem like an odd comparison, but unlike a Yang, who just recently, uh, who, who I referenced earlier in this podcast, has no political experience and so hasn't been able to build up any capital or trust among key political decision makers, activists, or just really people who pay attention to politics and, and are are active, dependable primary voters. Cory Booker is someone that uh, that that has a real record and has invested in significant policy fights on a broad range of areas and has been responsible for building coalitions behind those policies. He's someone who has a deep history uh, working with the faith community deep history on foreign policy issues, deep history uh, working on economic issues and uh, sort of uh, uh, finance being in, in New Jersey. And so you, you can see, uh, and Cory Booker is someone who, frankly, unlike Senator Harris, uh, has a record and has run from day one as a candidate who wants to unify the country and has shown his ability to do that through the coalitions he's built behind policies like criminal justice reform, uh, even immigration, and the places where he shows up. Uh, so he, he actually has some meat on the bones of what unites us is stronger than what, uh, or more important than what divides us, that 
some of the other candidates are just trying to sort of sell now because they just remember it's a Democratic primary and and hope wins in Democratic primaries, unity wins in Democratic primaries, uh, not not division. And so, look, Cory Booker is going to be able to fundraise the money. Uh, he's performing well in debates. The reports on the ground are that when he attends these cattle call events, he gets uh, among the top two or three strongest responses. Historically, that kind of performance adds up to something. Uh, and so I know I've been saying it for the last really month, month and a half. Uh, I, I still believe Cory Booker's going to pop. Obviously, I don't think he has the most likely uh, path to the nomination at this point. That's why he's number four. Uh, but I, I do think the Booker campaign is positioning itself in a clear way to either a break into the race as it stands now or when sort of the race intensifies and surprises happen, a Booker is kind of there as an acceptable alternative to the broadest constituency of Democratic primary voters. And so number four is Senator Cory Booker. Number three is Bernie Sanders. Uh, And it's not just because uh, Bernie is, you know, polling third in national polls. Uh, I I think the fact that he has uh, uh, history and the fact that many Democratic primary voters have voted for him already uh, in 2016 is is a benefit for him that carries some weight. Um, his uh, he's performing very well with younger voters. Uh, I think he has broader appeal this time around than he did in 2016. A big reason for that is politics has in the party has moved towards him in large part because of that first run. And then I'd say, I think Bernie's going to have an electability argument. It, it, I, it may not be a sound one once he gets tested, but you look at these polls and I think he's going to be able to say and say to democratic primary voters, uh, just look at the numbers. Uh, the the big knock on him is no one would vote for a socialist, uh, uh, or or the country would never elect a socialist, a democratic socialist, uh, self identifying. But you look at these swing state polls, and the only candidate doing better than him is Joe Biden. No, I'm again, I'm not saying that it's accurate to look at polls in September of 2019 to predict how things are going to turn out in November of 2020. But I have been surprised by the ammunition that's available there to the Sanders campaign to push back against one of the strongest arguments against nominating him. And so uh, Bernie Sanders, I have at number three. And I I would add one more layer to this, which is that Bernie Sanders, uh, as well as one of the candidates who ranks above him, uh, has a strong cadre of journalists who and columnists with influential perches uh, who clearly want him to win. <laughs> and so uh, you have journalists who are going to be willing to be 
carriers of opposition research that can produce a lot of buzz and work in Bernie's favor uh, as we move on. Now, I do think Bernie is a candidate who's really vulnerable to critiques. Uh, And so things are going to have to time out well for him uh, in order for him to get the nomination. If, if he becomes, uh, or if he became the front runner too early, uh, I think that would be a problem. But, but I have, I have Bernie at number three. Number two is Senator Elizabeth Warren. And sort of the opposite of Senator Harris prior to the campaign and running up to the campaign, I didn't have much confidence in Warren. Uh, and yet she's sort of won, won me over, uh, not to support her. I don't support any of the candidates in this race. But I've become convinced that she is uh, would be a stronger candidate in the general than many think. I've become convinced that she is someone who is running with a purpose that probably as much as any other candidate in the race, Elizabeth Warren knows why she's running. And it's a consistent through line through her career. She's been very effective. Uh, the fact that the politics in the Democratic Party seems to have moved enough for Elizabeth Warren to be palatable even to the center left and even to even to the center, even to um, Bernie Sanders helps her in, in that regard. Uh, and so I think Warren is the second likeliest to win the nomination at this point. She's looking strong in Iowa, looking strong in New Hampshire. Uh, and you could really see this race building up to uh, a significant uh, contest in, in South Carolina that sets the stage for, for Super Tuesday. I do think Elizabeth Warren is someone who's going to face critiques as uh, obviously as things heat up. It's going to be interesting to see how she responds to those. You get the sense that I've said on this podcast before that her she's had a rock solid commitment to not explicitly attacking fellow Democratic candidates, which I think is strategically smart for her. I think many of the candidates, uh, uh, many of the leading candidates are not going to find that uh, acceptable to them much longer. I think there's going to be an attempt to sort of bring Elizabeth Warren down from her, you know, highfalutin plans and her professorial explanations and actually try and get her into the fray of politics a bit more that frankly she doesn't have much experience in. Remember, she's not a lifelong politician. Uh, She uh, ran in Massachusetts where, uh, yes, she did, um, you know, run against a Republican who who had won, but, you know, it's Massachusetts. uh, And so she hasn't been in a sort of difficult uh, of an environment. She hasn't run in... um, in a, in a more in a more difficult state, and so I think candidates are are her opponents are going to want to test that. Uh, but she's uh, she has a lot of metal, uh, and she just might uh, she she's going to make a strong run for this nomination. I I don't see her uh, flaming out 
but we'll see. And that leaves, of course, number one, and that is former Vice President Joe Biden. Now, I think what we've seen is he clearly has some weaknesses, but the weaknesses that have been identified haven't yet proven to be as potent as the people pointing them out seem to think that they are. Now, maybe the reason for that is just because we're too far out. When you have such significant percentages of voters who have yet to tune in, maybe the polling just isn't completely unhelpful at this point. Uh, Maybe the attacks on on Biden are are going to be more greatly appreciated uh, when we get closer to this race. But here's what I'd say. I think Biden has a very strong campaign staff that's diverse, uh, that is probably top to bottom, covers as much, uh, has as many strengths and as few weaknesses as you'd want to see on a presidential campaign uh, compared to other other candidates. I think Joe Biden has a gravitas and an emotional connection with voters that will uh, persevere through quite a bit. Doesn't mean it's indestructible, but it does mean that voters, more than a lot of these new candidates, uh, believe that they know and can trust Joe Biden. And when you're running against Donald Trump with the stakes this high, that that means something. And then I just say, I think Joe Biden understands that the that the conversation among media elites and activist groups is important because if you completely lose that conversation, the the sort of uh, deluge of criticism and conventional wisdom will affect voters on the ground. At the same time, you don't need to win that conversation. You don't need to win over Uh, some of these voices in order to win the nomination. And in fact, Joe Biden seems to be uh, a candidate who understands that the Democratic primary electorate is very different from the commentariat and even the advocacy groups that claim to represent all of these people. And so that that's an advantage. You get the sense that Joe Biden is, yes, he has folks on his team who uh, understand the arguments have to be made uh, in the sort of elite set, uh, but he also understands that he can't lose who he is uh, in the process. And that's going to be very important. So that's the top 10. I think if, uh, again, so much can change, some of which can be predicted, and we tried to project out in these rankings, but so much of it is some of these candidates will find a new message that works for their campaign that they that they didn't have before. Uh, again, events can take place that, for instance, foreign policy mean more than it has loomed in the minds of primary voters, you know, up to this point. And so a lot can change, but that is a look at where the race stands now. One thing I'd like to add which is that there is one candidate who's not in the top 10 who I particularly have an eye on as someone who could not only break into the top 10, but has a very outside shot of getting the nomination. 
and that is Senator Michael Bennett. And it is for a lot of the same reason as uh, Cory Booker, which is why I didn't decide to make uh, Bennett sort of change the rules to allow Bennett to be in the top 10. Because I, I do think Michael Bennett has more of a shot of the getting the nomination than Andrew Yang. Uh, but his, his, his pathway is that he is someone who has advanced bold policy ideas, has won in a difficult state, unlike Cory Booker, I should, I should mention, uh, even though I, I think they have uh, somewhat similar appeals. Uh, and he's someone who could make a case that he's a, a unifying agent uh, in the in the party. And so you could see things sort of falling in a way that uh, people are looking for someone new. So, you know, this is a piece of Andrew Yang's sort of path to the presidency that sort of the, the field gets so demolished that none of the front runners seem acceptable anymore. And so, you know, uh, someone like Michael Bennett could could swoop in. Uh, and so th- this just a it's just a bug to, to put in your ear as an outside factor. Can someone like Michael Bennett build up support so that he can make the debate stage at some point? Uh, in in this race and if so what is he able to do with it then all right well that is the episode uh before we leave i did think it would, would be interesting just to reflect a bit on you know this far into the podcast what have we gotten right and what have we gotten wrong uh we we make a lot of predictions on the show. We uh, highlight certain things. I've said certain things. And, you know, just a, uh, as a matter of self-reflection that can potentially help us in the coming weeks and months, you know, what have, what have I gotten right? What have I gotten wrong? And, you know, in terms of what I've gotten wrong, a couple things. Well, one thing in particular, uh, points out to me, which is that after the July debate, uh, I had expressed confidence that what I was seeing f- uh, in the days after the debate uh, from Julian Castro suggested that his team was ready to capitalize on the good debate performance he had. And it has become clear to me, not just by the fact that he's not a front runner right now, <laughs> um, but through reporting that's out there that uh, I had a, I had a, I had a really bad read on the strength of Castro's campaign, his ability um, to have a, have a turnkey operation in, in place that could capitalize on what was widely held as a strong debate performance for him. And so we did see him have a little spike in the poll, but he's now sort of come back down uh, and, uh, I was expecting uh, a little more juice to come out of that. And so we were wrong there. I do think where we were right is I think we've tracked Pete Buttigieg's approach to faith pretty closely on the show. And I'd say that we've been we've been right on the dips and the turns that he's taken. I think we've provided deeper analysis than most on why he was approaching faith uh, in the way that he is. That it's a mixture of sort of personal commitment, political preemption, and also a, 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 a tapping into a certain 
uh, level of hunger and anger within the Democratic primary electorate. And I'd, I'd like to think that we played at least a small role in, in, in influencing the coverage of uh, the Buttigieg campaign. And uh, not just that, but if you read the Religion News Service uh, interview that Pete Buttigieg did with Jack Jenkins, uh, you'll see him address whether it's whether it's a result of anything we've done on this show or not. Uh, we saw him make some significant changes and nuances to his rhetoric that we've been pointing out for literally months. Uh, and so I think I think we've we've done a pretty good job covering the Buttigieg campaign. I am sure that there are other things that we've uh, gotten wrong, and maybe there are some other things that uh, you think that we've we've really nailed, uh, and would love to hear from you on Twitter or drop me a line uh, about what aspect of what we've done on this show has sort of best prepared you. Uh, or best informed you thus far for the primary as it is unfolding. Again, would encourage you to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. And then there's going to be some interesting, I think, content coming out on the Substack this week. I have a new piece out on the Electoral College and speaking into that debate. For those who are subscribers, and thank you to those who have subscribed, uh, you, you saw my a longer essay from me looking at the DNC's resolution on the religiously unaffiliated. Uh, There are some other pieces, uh, analysis, that are going to be coming out in the next week or two. And then, as always, three times a week, uh, we send out a range of content. Uh, On Monday, it's a politics and 2020 update and primer with a a curation of the best news and analysis when it comes to uh, uh, policy news in 2020. On Wednesday, we send out faith in the news, so looking at uh, the ways in which different kinds of religious actors and different ways that religious uh, religious activity is is making headlines. And then Friday, we send out five sort of longer reads, both longer in terms of the number of words on the page, but also sort of the um, the horizon that uh, the articles have, how how far out they're looking, and we send those out as well. Would love to have you a subscriber. Again, you could subscribe to Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com. All right. Well, before we cut out, I'm just going to repeat one last time uh, the rankings. And again, this is for candidates in order of how likely they are at this point to receive the Democratic nomination. Number one, former Vice President Joe Biden. Number two, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Number three, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. Number four, U.S. Senator Cory Booker. Number five, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. Number six, U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar. Number seven, Mayor of South Bend, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Number eight, Beto O'Rourke, former congressman. Number nine, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. Number 10, entrepreneur, businessman, Andrew Yang. All right, folks, looking forward to next episode where we'll have on a guest and return to our typical episode structure of zeroing in on some of the latest developments in the race, especially as they relate to faith in 2020. Thanks for being with us. 
We'll see you next episode on the Faith 2020 Podcast. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.